All right, welcome to the Legacy Wealth Podcast, where we teach accredited business owners uh, all about alternative asset funds. And today I have on the show with me Kimberly Smith, uh, my good friend and colleague or former colleague from Techstars, where we used to work together. Uh, welcome to the show, Kim. Thanks, Pascal. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm excited to have you on. It was great to, great to connect a little bit earlier, and uh, I'm excited to share your wealth of knowledge here on the show. So to kind of get started... Uh, and to get the audience familiar with you, give me or give us some of your background and story of of how you eventually started investing in funds or your or your background in this area. I'll start with my very interesting background. But um, I after I graduated from college, I started working for a family office. And really, I did not grow up in a home that talked about P&L on the dinner table. But we did talk about stocks a lot and active, what, well, now what we call passive versus active management and how, you know, we should always put money into funds, whether it's a Vanguard fund or Franklin Templeton fund. And then I entered into this world kind of right out the back of having having parents that were a dentist and a principal in a New York City public school, I entered this high-powered investing world um, the day, pretty much days after I graduated from college, uh, where I was working for a $2 billion family office that had a massive liquidity event. And they created this investment office um, that ultimately bore uh, funds that you may know. One is now called Sculpture, but formerly Oxif. Um, Palantir Capital, um, Atticus, um, Jim Chanos was in there. And so I worked at this office that, you know, really started to coin the term active management. Um, and what I saw, A, that they had, gr they were super, everyone that worked there was super smart. I was by far the dumbest person there. But I also noticed, um, they made a ton of money. They made these great invested, great investments and it made me start to have my passion for investing individually and through funds um, from a very young age. Um, even though I didn't know really what it meant, I knew these guys were making a lot of money. And I saw that people, big, important people were giving them money to make more money. And I was like, OK, there's a thing there. Like, you know, having professional people manage your money is way better than trying to do it yourself. Got it. Got it. And then from there, uh, so, you know, I know your background from yes. Techstars because we obviously work together. Where, yeah. Where is the gap? What happened between the gap of that first job and then and where you today, are today? So I, I joined this family. This is a family right after graduating from college. And I had a, a BA in political science and economics and, and, a, and a minor in bio and Spanish. And so, I, like I said, I did not come from this world. I thought I was going to go into... Um, I was going to be a lobbyist, which technically am. I'm registered lobbyist in New York and California, but uh, for different reasons, for fundraising reasons. But um, I thought that was the world I was going to enter. And then I kind of got thrown into investment world. Um, so I worked there for several years, but I spent most of my career at hedge funds. And before that, like I did a short trade, a short stint at trading coffee, sugar, cocoa, and energy uh, for a thousand-person trading desk. Um, and but and then but I spent most the bulk of my career at a hedge fund, um, too specifically, um, where I really fell in love and saw the benefit of active management, um, and that's really where my passion for investing. 
uh, really began uh, about two decades ago when I when I was like hands on the ground seeing people professionals investing capital on behalf of institutions and going in and meeting those inf- institutions and saying, hey, these they're having two smart guys in the room. Maybe Kim, who has an MBA in finance and is okay sm- of intellect, shouldn't do this on their own, that it's, there's real advantage to active management of one's portfolio. Uh, so that's when I started to kind of dip my, to- my toe into investing um, over the years, I've done more on my own in terms of researching and trying to create, you know, my own sort of portfolio asset class. Um, uh, separately from that, I am chair an investment committee um, for an endowment that's roughly $150 million. So I invest not only for myself, but I work with the collective group to invest on behalf of an institution where I'm a fiduciary, uh, which is a, an added burden because the vast majority of the capital that we invest is put back into the school um, to fund fund the fund, fund the institution and get financial aid. So for our students, so it is a higher burden, and so I take this type of analysis and thought process very seriously. Um, but across all that, I learned a lot about the benefit of having professionals invest your money for you. Yeah, and 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 uh, just like quickly, I'd love your quick take on active versus passive. Like, give me how you think of active versus passive investment and management. And I'm here for both. I have done so. My first investment was in a Franklin Templeton fund uh, in 19. My first investment on my own that I did on my own. It's a Franklin Templeton fund in 1996 after I got my first bonus, which was probably about $3,000. And I put $150 into this Franklin Templeton Worldwide Fund. And the reason why I chose it was because they took $150 as their minimum. And so that was kind of my first foray. But I went on Morganstar and I did all my research. And yes, there was internet in 1995, and but it was young. <laughs> but I was able to kind of build up a story and find a fund that will take my money. Um, and I like both. My personal portfolio is a mix of active versus passive investing. You know, sometimes if you're you do work on a manager, you compare it with the S&P and or these kind of dedicated vertical funds like a healthcare fund or a gold or metal and mining, like all of those things are kind of hard to do on their own. Um, But a lot of times, if you look at the performance versus active versus passive, uh, sometimes passive actually does better. But remember, passive management is still actively managed by a person um, and a team of individuals to work on the weighting. It's just really a lot of the times, you know, there's just lower, there's a lot of lower fees, um, easy entry and exit point. Um, So I, when I'm managing my liquidity, but I want exposure to healthcare, because I think it's a good asset class or real estate, like I think real estate is probably starting to get interesting again, you know, I'll go to a Vanguard or other leaders in the space and go into a REIT fund, as opposed to maybe going to a, a dedicated real estate fund at the time, although I am looking at one right now, um, just because of how I want my exposure and how I want the fees and whether I want access to the capital. Um, So I'm a big fan of both. I just think when you're thinking of passive investments, they tend to be much more liquid, much more broad based. And so if you need that, if you want to have access to your capital, I always look to passive. If you want to lock it up, 
there better be a premium to locking up your capital. Um, and you're going to an active manager, there's typically you're paying that premium through fees. But I want to see that on the back end in terms of performance. Um, but I like both. And I think a balanced portfolio should be a mix. Cool. I'm a lot more to dive in there uh, in a minute. I'm going to put a pin on that. And I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to go uh, to this idea of like when you're investing, Mm-hmm. What is it? What is it that you're investing for? Are you investing for cash flow? Are you investing for equity growth? Does that change over time? Does it based on how much money you have coming in from other things? Like, how do you figure out what? Like, if you're going to be making an active investment or a passive investment, talk to me about those kinds of things. I try to have a mix on the portfolio, as I said. Like, I try to have always have in money working for me. I always think money needs to work for for you. And so if I have cash coming in and I don't have time to do re- research or do analysis and see where I can get better risk reward for my capital, I will go passive on the quick side because I can access that capital. Um, but you know, when I think about how I invest, it's mostly for long-term growth. Like I'm less thinking about it as mailbox money, like I think as opposed to how do I create long-term growth of my capital so I can do X, Y, Z with it? And typically the X, Y, Z has been investing more. <laughs> um, and that's my personal strategy because I love investing. But for the most part, when I'm thinking about a portfolio construction and how I want it, it is really to end up growing wealth um, and taking it. When I get cash in, I do not want that cash in my bank account. Even though the markets look like they are today, if I have cash, excess cash in my banking account and I know that I don't need it immediately, I am automatically looking at ways to invest that capital to grow to grow that to grow that money. Because every every day that goes by that you're not investing it, it's it's I'm losing losing money. I'm losing money and you know, having cash as part of your portfolio. Now don't go all in cash. <laughs> go all in on all of your cash. Just, but always keep that you know money for the rainy day. But yes, when I have money coming into my account, I like to have money that I've found money or bonus money or whatever money. I do try to reinvest that capital pretty quickly um, once I've figured out my spending needs because it ends up being a cash drag on your long term growth. Um, and that's how I try to think about it. You know, what are my next when, what are my capital needs today, tomorrow, in the next 20 years, and how and I invest accordingly. Um, but as if you cash in your bank account is it makes me nervous to have a lot of cash in my bank account, not because I think someone's gonna take it, but it's just you're not making money on it. There's no there's no upside in that. Totally. So something uh, something that I'm picking up on is or maybe like something oh the way that I think about it I'm wondering if you agree is like as you get more income and as your wealth grows this is kind of like a new skill that you just need if if you want to be wealthier and grow your wealth and have more opportunities it, it's just learning the skill is something that you need to do and you can either choose to do it active or passively or a mixture um but it's it's Kind of a necessity if you want to keep growing and going up the food chain. No question. I mean, one of the things that I focus on in my personal life is financial literacy, particularly for underserved population. And that starts 
now. That starts when they're in high school, before they leave the home. You know, understanding savings, checking, investing, uh, because if you don't have those basics, you cannot be successful. And you start with those kind of at infrastructure build and that as you and then understanding the importance of savings. So what do you do next? And what do you do next is invest. And one of the things like I grew up in a wonderful home. Um, like I said, my parent, my mother was a school principal. My father was a dentist. But one of the things they always did and taught me was how to invest. At the time, they didn't have, you know, so whether it was fund investments or drip stocks where you're getting your dividends reinvested, um, where you can do that correctly at a low cost, there's no reason, regardless of how much money you have, that a portion of your wealth isn't invested in something. And because that is the only way to grow your wealth. You cannot grow your wealth through sitting in cash or CDs. It's through finding vehicles, active or passive, depending on your time, your ability to analyze these, these investments, um, or you know your inclination. But you need to find things to invest in if you want to get that end goal. And I think most people are, and that end goal could be for your yacht or your Maserati or to give back to the community. But you cannot do that if the capital isn't you know, invested. And that's what I really try to hit home with young people that I try to mentor and to teach them about investing um, and the importance of understanding it, the asset class holistically uh, of investments, whether it's active versus passive. So, so let, let's go back to that first fund. You know, if, at first yeah. you were like, hey, I wanted to invest. Uh, I invested $150 into this yeah. first fund. What was what was the first time you invested like a substantial, like maybe like a 50K into a fund where there's an Oprah operator, where uh, you might have like a, a lockup period where where it's it's not where it's tied up for five to 10 years and, and walk us through like, how did you how did you find the deal? Um, what was going through your mind? Like, how did you decide that this was the right thing to do and not invest it actively? Talk, yeah. Well, the, the first, it was a private equity fund, very well known out of Boston, um, that I will be honest with you, I got, uh, I was able to invest, um, which at the time was a half a million dollars, which is a significant amount of my net worth. And it was, if not the majority of my liquid net worth at the time, uh, but it's a very well-known fund and they have a track record that's extraordinary over the last, like probably now three decades. And this was maybe 15, 16 years ago when I did this, maybe a little bit more, but I don't want to date myself, but uh, they, so I invested this money. I felt physically ill. Like as soon as I signed the subscription agreement, I actually felt sick to my stomach, not because I was going to lose the money, <laughs> but because of like, okay, this is the first, like I dated a lot of investing before, like this was a marriage. This was my first marriage into investing and the capital was locked up for a decade. And, but I went through the, I looked at all their previous performance I looked at some of the deals that they were thinking about putting in. It's in the telecom space, TMT space. Um, but I was ultimately got comfortable putting this number, this amount of capital into this investment vehicle because A, they have a 
great track record. I trusted the portfolio managers. I'd spent a lot of time. And they were lucky. Like, I was lucky. They spent a lot of time with me because I didn't have a ton of money um, to make sure I felt comfortable and locking up my capital for that long. Uh, but I really understood what I was getting into. And when I think about the active versus passive, just to like go back to that thread, their performance is amazing. They way outperform any market index that's in their space. Um, but it was a long lockup period. And I feel much more comfortable locking up my capital in these longer duration deals. Uh, this is my personal preference. I, you know, these long duration private equity deals where I think there's outsized return potential. I have a much harder time investing in equity strategies that are active two and 20 strategies, unless they're doing something so off the run that I can't access it through uh, an index or a specialty uh, fund. Uh, so those are the strategies where I tend to go, and back to your original question, that I tend to go more passive, where I can really pretty much get the same level of returns over time in, an, in a passive fund. Um, those I tend to stay a little bit farther away from for longer dated private equity type investments where I know I really need a capital, like they need the capital to make an investment work and they need the time. I'm much more comfortable. Uh, but I made that first investment. I've laid in bed for weeks. I'm thinking I'm not going to be able to, I didn't have a family, but thinking I, I'm not going to be able to like make my rent or mortgage payment. Uh, and it ended up working out very well. But you have to like bite that bullet. Uh, and really, your first uh, investment in a longer lock fund, you really have to understand the risk. Like, I understood it very clearly. I may not see a dollar for a decade. Can I live with this? Uh, and I could, and it worked out for me. And so uh, to, to recap, or to make sure I'm understanding this correctly, what I'm hearing is that you decided to go with a fund and lock up your capital because this fund that you felt comfortable with and that you did a lot of due diligence on had uh, was supposed to be giving you much higher returns than anything you could have done yourself or done actively. Correct. And they had the expertise to do it better. Like meaning I was paying a premium lockup fees, all of that because these guys are best in class in executing on their strategy. And that's the thing that I think people miss. It's not like, and they needed the capital. Like a lot of times you analyze funds and these guys are all, everybody's smart, but do they need your capital to execute your strategy? Does the capital need to be act, like, does the capital need to be locked up to execute their strategy? What is their advantage in the space that they can do it better than anybody else that warrants a lockup, warrants the higher fees? And these guys did. And I had the ability to access this well below the minimum in this case. And everybody out there always asks because people are always willing to waive the minimums, uh, even if it says it's much higher. Typically, if you get a nice IR person, they will waive the minimums for you as long as you're an accredited or qualified purchaser. But anyway, um, but the premium really came from the fact that A, I couldn't do it myself. They could do it better. They had the strategy to execute, and I would never have been able to access these investments in any other vehicle, period, active or passive, and hence why it was all worth it to me. So what, what, kind, of, what kind of investment is this? Like, I'm thinking in my mind, like, 
okay, I have access to real estate, deals, multifamily buildings, mobile home parks, oil and gas, ATM funds, like like what what kind of deal is this that and you know it's all dependent on what you have access to what what kind of genre or niche was this in it was in the uh, telecom and media tmt telecom media and technology space but they were accessing middle they were accessing small to mid cap deals that no that were like all privately held companies company so not stuff like that we used to, that we're used to working with, not early stage. I mean, these are companies with real businesses. Sometimes they needed to be fully restructured. There had to be, I have been an M&A opportunity. They sometimes would have to fly in people to um, operate the company, you know, in and out of these companies to kind of help restructure these businesses. But it was that ability, like having all that access was what made this deal compelling to me. Like companies will, we will never have heard of but they might be part of a very large company today. Like that's where the, the, they could execute on that. They could call up, we have, you know, Jimmy's local telecom company, but they have the market on, I don't know, Ohio, like the Ohio farming community. They have this, maybe they have one band of spectrum that nobody has access to, which is might be a, a not a broadband, an hour brand spectrum. But like, if you know anything about spectrum plays, you can easily reclass if you get the FCC approval. You can reclassify those as broadband. They come much more. They become much more um, valuable. And so, in this, in like a case like this, they take that Ohio. They were able to take like the Ohio spectrum and like merge it with a massive cable company. I mean, this is just an idea. Like this is I made this idea up, like this strategy up. But like those are the things that they could do that nobody else could do. And. Um, and like being able to contact in that instance, like having companies and uh, managers that, hey, can get the FCC on the phone and to negotiate the reclassification for narrow to broadband spectrum, you know, that's huge. And that is the benefit of active management because otherwise, like typically the guy from Vanguard isn't, that's not what he's paid to do. He's paid to weight portfolios, which is, a, which is definitely, there's a premium to that, but he's not paid to help create value. And that's what you should get from your active manager. You need to create value. Kim, I mean, I have to uh, imagine that in the years before you made that investment, somehow you were like introduced to that type of vertical. Because for me, that vertical is foreign to me, something I'm interested in learning more about and I'm going to dive into next. But <laughs> Uh, like for me, you know, I've, I've been around real estate and I've heard a ton about oil and gas. Like I've always had friends that had wealthy, like parents that, you know, invest in oil and gas. And so like, those are the initial funds that I think about investing into. I'm imagining you didn't just like, oh, this fund sounds interesting. Like, you know, you had some exposure. Is that accurate or? That's like, true. I mean, I'm intellectually curious, as you know. Uh, so that's one, but, uh, yeah, I had I definitely had access to it. I mean, I worked in investment firms that invested across um, many different asset classes in both liquid and non-liquid investments. And what I can tell you about non-liquid investments, like particularly, I have worked to to uh, two hedge funds that had credit expertise, specifically distressed debt. The amount of work that goes into a distressed debt or credit investment is enormous, and you cannot do that on your own. And you need a manager that has expertise in the space, that is willing to sit on boards, is willing to work with others to affect an outcome. Like I saw that real. I saw that in real time. 
And I was lucky because we had telecom plays and we had health tech plays and, you know, financial plays and spectrum plays. Obviously, I know a lot about spectrum. I spent a lot of time on, on that era, on that sector. But yeah, I mean, I got smart because I, I worked at two, for two active managers. So I know the benefits of what active management does for investors. And that is create wealth. But with that said, I actually tend to invest in areas that I'm intellectually curious, but don't have as much knowledge on. So when you and I bonded, you were the one that taught me about Web3. You, you, you are my inspiration. Now I'm writing articles about Web3, but, and I invest, you know, I, as you know, from our texts, I, you know, continue to dabble in the crypto DeFi hemisphere, NFT, whatever. Um, but I would invest in active manager if I was going to put real money in it. And because I don't have the access, like I don't have the access to sit on whatever that DeFi committee to affect different, like affect change or improve process in the industry or transparency, whatever it is. Like, yeah, also a couple bucks in Solana or whatever. But if I want to make a, you know, a six figure plus investment in something that I know just enough to be dangerous, I'm doing that to an expert. I'm leaving that to an expert because I know it's more than just hey, I'm smart. I'm looking at a DCF and the numbers match up. It's more about how do we work to create value for each and every investment in our portfolio for our investors. And that comes with working together. Sometimes you have to bring in outsourced resources. Our biggest expense outside of salaries at both firms, legal. Legal to do to help affect change. And so that is the real benefit of active management that people don't really understand. Like, it's not a bunch of guys in a room, you know, eating Twizzlers. It's a bunch of guys and gals in a room working with lawyers <laughs> to and other and lobbyists and whomever to create value for you. Um, and that's what active investments, that's the premium active investments affords you as an investor. What are, what are, like, give me, give me an idea of, how much you've invested total across, like what are all the different types of asset classes you've invested into? What do you, what's your favorite type of deal? What's your, What's been the worst deal that you've had? I mean, I tend to, oof, I mean, I've definitely invested in funds and other such things as uh, well in excess of dollars, but it's been a mix. Like most, some of my investments have been okay. I've had a couple big winners uh, here and there. And I have a couple that are losers. I mean, I definitely have a crypto fund that's not my best. I believe in the manager and it, I believe in what he's doing. But, you know, it's if on a mark to market basis. Poof, uh, it's tough, but well, they still have a timeline. They still have a timeline. You still got a couple of years, you know. But yeah, but to the point is, I'm actually glad I'm not locked up in that fund because I think to to you've hit the nail on the head. I think there's plenty of time for it to rebound. 
And I'll be perfectly candid with you. My crypto portfolio hasn't done that well either. The one I tried to make myself. <laughs> and so uh, I can't, I, you know, I'm not going to be the judge, jury, and executioner when I didn't do as well as they did. And I think that they have the ability to actually make something happen at a much larger scale because they have a bigger platform. They have more access. They have access to resources and they have access to information that I'm not going to ever be able to get. And so, again, like, yeah, on a mark to market basis, this crypto fund hasn't done well, but I'm not I'm not down for the count either. Like, I still believe as long as I still believe in the manager and actually I like the fact that he's taken marks in his book. You know, some of the things he's in, he's invested in projects that don't really have a mark to market. They're more a private equity type feeling um, in terms of investments or privately held companies like he marked those down. There are people that don't, haven't done that. And so I do think that's incredibly important as well. Um, I have this one investment uh, that I love. Um, it's a fund called Savory Funds. And I can't wait till they come out with their next um, investment, their next fund. And I have a small investment in it because I really didn't understand the state. What is it? What is it? It's a fast, casual restaurants business. And so they invest in all these restaurants in primarily in Utah and Arizona where the owner is the operator. They come in, they take a significant stake in the company, but the owner has to still be operating the businesses and the food. Every one of these restaurants, the food is fantastic. The portfolio manager is fantastic. And, and I really trusted him from the minute I even spoke to him on the phone, not even video. I just, there was something in his voice that I just really connected with him. And I didn't know the space. Um, you know, you think about restaurant business. Every time people say restaurant business, you lose all your money. It's one of my best investments. And like I said, I can't wait for him to, to go back to market with his next fund. But he's done a great job. The companies that he invests in love him and he he's doing something unique because a lot of times when people come in to these companies, and this isn't just in the restaurant space, this is in all sectors, they come in and think they can build a better mousetrap. They think that they know better than the owner that has run the business forever. And sometimes that is the case, right? That's not uniformly, but sometimes you have a good business and he understands that you grow at a certain pace. He doesn't push that, you know, push them out of their comfort zone. But you continue to, he continues to get the knowledge of, of having the owner operator still involved in the business. And that resonated with me. I really, you know, obviously spending two decades on Wall Street, you see a lot of times people come in, they come into businesses, particularly as active investors or distressed investors, and they push out the operating team. And 99% of the time, that's right. Maybe they've screwed up. But a lot of times when you're dealing with families and restaurant businesses where, you know, people are very much accustomed to seeing the same guy there, guy and gal there, it's really important to have that continuity. And they understood that, that Savory really understood that Andrew really understood that. Uh, and that's why I think they're so successful. And so for me, one of the investments I'm, that is one of the most, one of the investments I'm most excited about. Like, I truly know I couldn't do it on my own as much as I, you know, I will be on franchise.com occasionally. Like, should I buy Wendy's? Uh, but, but 
I know that Andrew Savory can do it at scale, but I can't. So even if I invested in one Wendy's and I put the same amount of money into when that Wendy's franchise, I'm going to make 10x on my money through Savory because they know how to execute. I don't know how to do it. <laughs> right? I don't know how to run a Wendy's. I love a good Frosty, but like that doesn't mean I can run a business. And then you see all these people that think they can run a business. That's why you know the benefit, particularly on the private equity longer lockup, where you have people that have real expertise for expertise in running businesses. Uh, that's why they do so well. You know, that's why it's worth the premium for locking up your capital and and leaving it to the experts. You have to you hit on a, you that hit, you're not an expert. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're hitting on a consistent theme here that that I've that I'm also re resonating with, which is around choosing the operator and resonating with the operator and their strategy and. And so, so, you know, are you, are you hopping on a call and you're like, what's up, man? Like pitch me, or are you, do you have like a due diligence checklist or, you know, are you meeting with people multiple times or is it like you get a referral and then you know, how are you approaching, like, where are you finding funds? And then how are you deciding like, this is my, my guy or gal? A lot of it for me is relationship driven, meaning I can, you know, you Pascal can introduce me to Jimmy bag of donuts or whatever, and we could connect and I, and that could be it, right? Like it could be that type of relationship um, or just people I've, you know, come across through the last two decades in my career, but it's bigger than that for me. I mean, that referral, a referral always means more. A referral that's backed up by, I have money with this guy, that means more. But I also want to have money with people I like. Like, it's really a tough pill for me to swallow when I have a manager that maybe they've put up good returns, but I don't like the guy and or gal. You know, I just, something about them doesn't connect. And doesn't mean in, in an ethical way. Just like they might not have common threads or how he runs his business is different how than I would run my own. But I do I do try to look bigger than just performance. There has to be, I'm gonna lock up my capital, whether it's a hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars or whatever. I do like to understand the person. So I don't have a formal due diligence. Everybody's smart. You know, everybody's got the auditor. Obviously, I'll look and make sure there's a real auditor, a real administrator. You know, what what am I getting from a tax perspective? Are you sending me a K-1 or, you know, are you on or, you know, what, what kind of reporting am I getting from you? That is important. Don't get me wrong. But what's even more important to me is like feeling like I can go to bed at night and maybe the money is like a larger check than I wanted to give or I feel comfortable at the time. But I never, when I gave that purple, circling back to that first example, I never was worried that my money went missing. I was just worried, can I pay my bills? Because <laughs> I've, you know, I've dedicated, I've committed this much of this much capital, uh, as opposed to anything else. And so, it is a little bit relationship driven for me, and having kind of shared values. In terms of not only how you how you treat your employees, that's definitely a question I ask. Like, how are you compensating your employees? How what's the gen, you know tenure of your employees, and if they leave, why? Like, I'm not one of those people that believes like turnover is bad. Turnover is healthy in an organization, 
and helps to give new perspective, but you want to understand why and what, what are they doing to either incentivize people to grow or to leave because, and grow elsewhere. Like those are the things I try to kind of understand um, from a manager, not just how they're going to make money. Because when you're investing in a fund, you're not buying past performance. You're buying future performance. So how are you going to execute on that? What is What team do you need to execute on that? What resources outside of your organization, whether it's outside law firms or consultants or whomever do you need? Those are the kinds of questions I seem to like leg into. But I also want to know your story. Like what motivates you? Uh, you know, why do you keep doing this? All, everyone I meet with is successful, right? 99% of people you meet with are successful. But what motivates you to keep going and continue to do all this work to give to, to, to make money for your investors? Those are the kind of questions I try to leg in on because 90, 90% of the time you're buying a portfolio that's new. Yeah, I hear that. I hear that. Okay, damn. Kim, this is a good conversation. I might need to have you on again, but we're we're getting close to time. But I have I have um I have one question around just look, you started early on with, you know, your first initial 50k check into this one fund and now you've invested over an excess of and there's probably a bunch of learnings along the way. What's what's maybe been your biggest shift or maybe lessons learned or, you know, the nugget that someone can take away as like, "Damn, okay, I'm not going to do that." The biggest shift is, can you, there are two. One, realize you can't do it on your own. That's to me, the, that is the biggest shift, is that you can't do it on your own. It is impossible to be work full time, manage your children, do, you know, land an aircraft and you know, be an investment manager. There are people paid to do it. And that is on both the active and the passive side. So being smart enough to realize, okay, I can't do this myself. I'm going to allow a professional to do it. That is number one thing I've learned. I hear a lot of people, particularly when I went deep in the crypto world, they all thought that they were smarter than the next guy. They'd send me their notions and their checklists and all this stuff. But like me as my little person, I can't make a difference in a million dollars. I can't make a difference of $5 million. I can't make a difference of $10 million in crypto space, but like a billion dollar fund can, right? Like, and so being able to realize, being smart enough to know, you are not smart enough to know as much as someone that is paid to do this is my biggest lesson learned. Because whenever I've tried to do it on my own, my performance is not great. Like maybe I can ring the bell for a month or so. I bought Bitcoin at 576. I look real smart for a few years, but you know, that was better. I bought one <laughs> like, smart guys, bought you know, hundreds of them, thousands yeah. of them. And that's the benefit of being a true investment manager and leaving this work to the experts. Yeah. I love it. Was there a second one or was that? Was that was it. Said, that's the biggest okay, I one. It. I mean, I, that's I, the biggest it. one. You nailed it. You nailed it. Kim, this was awesome. I loved having you on the show. I think this was super valuable and I learned a lot. Okay. Uh, and I also got to get know you a little bit more too through the investing lens. Yeah. So that was cool. Um, so thank you for coming on the show. Of course. Thanks, Pascal. You know, I love yeah. you. I'll do anything for you. Oh, too kind, too kind. <laughs> all right. Thank you all. Uh, and we'll see you on the next episode. Take Bye. care. Bye.